Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show. Canada's biggest businesses are offering to lend their expertise and knowledge to the government when it comes to mass vaccination campaigns and pandemic recovery plans. Is the government listening? We'll talk about that and why Aaron O'Toole is so focused on the 2022 Olympic Games. But first, this is a star exclusive that caught my attention by Robert Benzie. Um, the headline is Ford government set to expand Greenbelt protected area while proceeding with controversial highway nearby. Um, the Ontario government is moving to expand the 800,000 hectare Greenbelt of protected lands around the Greater Golden Horseshoe, according to the Star. Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark, who's going to hold an announcement today, I he's scheduled to hold it. In fact, he's doing it right now. I'm guessing this is about the Greenbelt. We'll give more information about that. But um, until we get the skinny on what he's announcing, we do know this much. He will uh, be, the government will be launching a 60-day public consultation to determine ways to safeguard more farmland, wetlands, forest, and watersheds from development. This is conservatives. This is not the liberal government. And um, Mr. Clark said, we're not going to entertain any conversations about a land swap. Our government will not consider any proposals to remove or develop any part of it, the minister said, stressing that existing legislative protections would remain. We're not going to go back and look at why certain lands were put into the Green Belt in 2005. We're not changing any of the policies that the liberals put in place. We're not going to review these policies about infrastructure. Why not? Wouldn't that be prudent? As part of the consultation, people will acknowledge that infrastructure can be built because of the Green Belt Act. Highways can be built. Sewage pipes can be built. Infrastructure is allowed in the Green Belt. So we're not proposing to make any changes to that section. Okay. So the first thing I'm thinking is, is this consultation actually a way to justify development due to loopholes? Here to talk about it, Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Green Party. Mike, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Morning, Kelly. Pleasure to be on. So, I mean, the big story this week was all about that contentious $6 billion Highway uh, 413, the GTA. It's proposed to go through Vaughan, Caledon, Orangeville, and Milton. And it seems like uh, if there's anybody pushing back on it, the government is going to use this consultation to say, wait a minute, it's all in the law. Are, are we talking about loopholes here? So, Kelly, I think you've nailed it in that regard. No amount of possibility of expanding the Greenbelt can cover up the Ford government's environmentally destructive agenda. If the premier is serious about greenbelt protection and expansion he will cancel paving over the duffins creek wetland he will cancel the 4113 highway which is a waste of money will pave over 2,000 acres of farmland and 400 acres of greenbelt he will bring back and restore the power of conservation authorities he will restore the environmental assessment process he will restore the ability of municipalities to regulate below the water table aggregate extraction all environmentally destructive policies the Ford government's brought in just in the last year or so. So obviously you're saying uh, you don't believe that they are uh, actually worried and concerned about the health of the green belt. I'm guessing by what you just said, based on the actions that uh, they're going ahead with. But Mr. Clark in insisted the progressive conservatives want to build upon your 2019 private members bill the Paris Galt Moraine Conservation Act, 
which has been mired in legislation for two years, they said uh, our approach is to use Greenbelt Act as an opportunity to expand the Greenbelt in that area. Is this a bait and switch here? It feels that way. I mean, here, here's the bottom line is, is Greenbelt expansion is good. I've for a long time it, uh, been supportive of the Crombie Commission's uh, proposals around expanding the Greenbelt. Matter of fact, I have put forward a private member's bill to expand Greenbelt protections in and around Guelph, my writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is separate from the discussion of a highway that's going to pave over farmland uh threatening our food security and our food and farming economy and also increasing the risk to flooding and other climate impacts. It's separate from the fact that the government is is misusing ministerial zoning orders to destroy things like provincially significant wetlands that are critical to protecting our, our water and protecting us from flooding. Those are separate issues. So if the premier is serious about Greenbelt protection and expansion, he needs to back off and actually reverse many of the policies they brought in that threaten the places we love and actually threaten the integrity of the Greenbelt. That's exactly why uh, the chair of the Greenbelt Council and six other members resigned from the council. I'm all for conservation. I mean, I, I, you've heard on the show, I'm sure, you know, we've had you on, we've had other uh, conservation uh, lobbyists uh, on the show. Um I actually, I don't have a problem with the, with the PCs going back and looking at the plan. I actually prefer that, you know, going back and looking at, um, you know, why certain lands were put into the Greenbelt in 2005. Because as you say, there's some valuable farming land, but there's also some farming land that sucks, that stinks, that I actually personally know of, that is part of the Greenbelt, that really has no business being part of the Greenbelt. It was just arbitrarily uh, picked and thrown in there. Um, so what I think would be good is if you're serious about conservation, looking for, and we need sustainable food, uh, sources, looking for the actual appropriate lands to, you know, protect and the ecologically important places to protect, making that greenbelt. So really solidifying what greenbelt should be. And the fact that they're not willing to go in and have a little look-see makes me nervous because then I, you know, I think, yeah, they found a loophole. There's a loophole to allow them to do whatever they want. And what exactly is that loophole? However, at the same time that they mentioned, hey, we're allowed to develop, it's in the legislation. They're also pointing to not only your um, Conservation Act that you've been pushing for a while, but they're also saying they hope to protect, better protect environmentally sensitive urban river valleys like Toronto's Don River, Humber River, Dufferin's Creek and Ajax and Pickering. They're talking about their 21 urban river valleys and wetlands in the Greenbelt that they're trying to protect. But these areas, to me, when I think about them, like Toronto Don River area, they're already inhospitable places to build. It, this to me seems like it's just optics. Like, say you're protecting this area, but there's really no way to build on it. You wouldn't, as a builder, because of floodplain or just the the uh, the the terrain that you're dealing with, build. So there's only so far you can go with protection uh, of these areas that are already built up around. Yeah. So, Kelly, you've raised a couple important issues. So one is it is true that when the Liberals brought in the Greenbelt legislation. There is, an, there is an exemption that allows the building of public infrastructure. Uh, and in some cases, that infrastructure is necessary. And in other cases, it's reckless and irresponsible. So I oppose the Liberal government when they built a gas-fired peaking electricity plant in the Holland Marsh 
uh, threatening the best farmland in North America. Just like I'm going to oppose uh, wasting six to $10 billion on a highway uh, that's gonna pave over parts of the Greenbelt and 2000 acres of farmland uh, to save commuters 30 seconds on their commute, which to me just seems like a, a waste of money. So, um, so, you know, we need to separate out responsible and necessary infrastructure such as public transit, for example, or sewage lines, for example, that are needed mm -hmm. from reckless and irresponsible development. And so that is a key point that we cannot allow this possible expansion conversation of the Greenbelt to cover up that fact. Secondly, some of those lands, particularly in our urban um, uh, river valleys and waterways are critically important to protect. And that's exactly why the Crombie Commission had recommended that uh, primarily, uh, they are essential to providing protection around uh, cleaning our drinking water and especially protecting us from flooding. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we have had some development in those floodplains is deeply concerning from a protect people's property standpoint and from a protect our communities and infrastructure from flooding standpoint. What completely I don't understand is why the government would say, hey, we want to protect the Duffins Creek watershed but we're going to pave over the Duffin Creek wetland, which is essential to protecting the watershed and protecting us from flooding, especially when if you speak with the mayor of Ajax, there are plenty of other parcels of land that have already been zoned and would be an appropriate and responsible place to build the warehouse that the government is wanting to pave over wetlands for. So to me, it's like, you know what, mm -hmm. you know, actions speak louder than words. If you're really truly about protecting these vital um, natural heritage features that benefit us in terms of food production and flood protection and, and cleaning our water, et cetera, uh, then, then stop the reckless development that you've already been approving. Mike, what do you think about them pointing out your, um, your project directly? Uh, do you think they're trying to kind of massage you because you're one of their most vocal critics? Uh, well, I, I, uh, that's certainly a possibility, Kelly, and I, and I don't want to speculate uh, why they would point to my private member's bill other than uh, my private member's bill is designed to expand Greenbelt protections in, in the region in and around uh, Guelph and in an important area around water protection and flood protection. Um, but I want to emphasize that we cannot allow them to use that to cover up the other destructive practices they're doing. We cannot allow the discussion, and it, right now it's only a discussion about expanding uh, the Greenbelt, cover up the ways in which they're threatening the integrity of the Greenbelt. So my job here at Queen's Park, and I think the job of people across this province is to call the government out and say that if you're about protecting the places we love, our farmland, our wetlands, uh, our natural heritage features that are so vital to protecting and serving us, mm -hmm. then you have to be consistent and you have to reverse the decisions you are making right now and have made over the last year and a half or so that actually threatens those areas, including the integrity of the Greenbelt. Yeah, and let's face it, this this pandemic has really brought to the fore how much people appreciate our green spaces um, and how much we need them. Absolutely, and, and our farmland, for that matter. Yeah. I mean, 
Remember, remember last spring when uh, President, the then President Trump was closing the border uh, about PPE shipments and all of a sudden we were worried about, oh my gosh, what if they close the border around food shipments? Just highlights how important this farmland, especially in and around the GTA, is to our food security. Not to mention the fact that the food and farming sector is one of the largest employers and one of the largest contributors to, to our GDP. So mm -hmm. it's an economic threat if the premier is going to pave over farmland. Yeah. And we also saw that, you know, when, when you look at the stats on where the CERB went, it certainly didn't go to rural communities. They were okay. They had their jobs during the pandemic because their work was essential. Mike, I want to thank you for your time. Hey, my pleasure, Kelly. Anytime. We had the first wave. We're just ending the second wave of the pandemic. And now we're hearing warnings that we might actually have a third wave. Colin Furness is an epidemiologist. He joined us on the show on Tuesday just to talk about the possibility of uh, a third wave and the fact that he doesn't like lockdowns. And so I'm the last one to say that we need to stay locked down because I think they're so awful. Mm -hmm. uh, what we, I think we need to do is be very cautious, watch the signs, measure carefully, and when things start to go back up, to not hesitate. And this has been Ontario's failure is it has hesitated. Uh, it has dithered. Instead of instead of moving with alacrity, so I think if we start to see the contagious variants multiply dangerously, then we need to move very quickly to close. But I, I don't think that we should all stay hunkered down. I think that's that's already done enough harm, and to the extent that we have a relatively safe period right now, we should be taking advantage of it. I would argue that our next guest agrees with him that he doesn't want a lockdown. Uh, Perrin Beatty is the CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, and he joins the show. Perrin, pleasure to have you on. Hi, Kelly. Glad to be with you. The third wave, it's a threat. Uh, we'd love to avoid lockdown because we know that uh, the economic health of our businesses is at threat right now. We've, they've gone through the first wave, the second wave. Many of them haven't even survived the first wave, let alone the second wave. Uh, the COVID Recovery Leadership Council is something that you've formed. Can you talk about uh, who's involved in this council and why it was important to form this council? What we have is 20 very senior CEOs in the country of large and small businesses from every region of the country and from a wide variety of sectors. What we wanted to do was to, to bring them together to look at ways in which we can provide advice to government at, at all levels, but also to look at what it is that business can do directly to be part of the solution. Our choice is we can either sit back and wait for governments to solve the problems, or we can help. And what we want to do is to, to be part of the solution and to help. When we talk about this third wave, what is is really important is to avoid this third wave or minimize this third wave. We need to get vaccine into people's arms as quickly as possible. You, uh, you said you are looking for ways that businesses can take direct action without having to wait on the government to move ahead. So what do you have in mind? Because I know that you would like to help with the vaccination progress. We've certainly uh, reached out to government to offer that, that business is there to help with logistics, where in some cases businesses have offered to open up community clinics themselves. Uh, companies like Chapman Foods in, in uh, Markdale, a, a family-owned company in a, in a small community, have offered their super, super cooling freezer that they have to help to protect the vaccine. Um, pharmacies across the country are potential uh, delivery mechanisms for people to be able to get their shots. Uh, today, if you're in Florida, you could make an appointment at the local Winn-Dixie supermarket at their pharmacy and go in and, and get your shot. Uh, so there's a key role for, for the private sector to play. Uh, another element of that is, is clearly 
in terms of educating our employees and educating our customers about the importance of vaccination as the vaccines become available. Because the sooner that we can get Canadians vaccinated, the sooner we can get our lives back. I understand ex- executives from Shoppers Bar- Drug Mart being involved and from Pfizer being involved because that does involve uh, getting the vaccines into arms. I know your your um, council also consists of the uh, of someone from BlackBerry. Can you tell us what they would bring to the table when it comes to mass vaccination campaigns? What, what we're doing is calling upon business to provide their expertise. It's not simply for vaccination. But it's for how do we move away from reacting to the disease with a series of yo-yo lockdowns and subsidy programs that we've had to actually actively managing the disease, particularly between now and the, the time when we can get Canadians vaccinated. Um, that includes things like rapid testing. It includes things like the protocols for safety uh, in physical distancing. How do we manage businesses? What do we do to protect our employees and our and our customers? Uh, what can we do with, with PPEs and so on? Um, how do we promote the use of COVID tracing apps? So uh, what business can do is to bring a business approach to managing the issues that we're facing and also bring some of the logistical capacity that business has to make things happen. And when we look at the you know, 98% of the, of, of the businesses in the country that are SMEs, what larger businesses can do is to provide best practices and expertise so that smaller businesses in the country don't have to reinvent the wheel for themselves. You brought up uh, Chapman's ice cream. Uh, we spoke with the folks at Chapman's. And one thing, if, if you didn't hear the interview, I'm just going to throw this out for the listening audience, is Chapman's actually procured the freezer. When they found out that Pfizer had to store their um their COVID vaccine at a very low temperature, an absurdly low temperature, something like minus 70. They realized that they actually had contacts to people that could, you know, build those uh, refrigerators, those freezers. They didn't need them for their ice cream. In fact, odds are they won't use them for their ice cream ever. They'll just wait until the next pandemic and offer that up to the government again. Is the story like Chapman's procuring the freezer waiting for the government to respond to the fact that they have already gone out and secured this really important piece of the puzzle is the fact that they've done that and that the chamber of commerce have put together this COVID-19 recovery leadership council, a very big sign that confidence in the government is waning and that uh, business leaders, people that are used to making the uh, engine of this uh, country run are sick of sitting on their hands. Our first preference is obviously to collaborate very closely with government, but we don't have the luxury of waiting for government if, if government isn't acting quickly enough. Uh, another example of that would be the the uh, rapid test kits that we have, where the federal government has acquired millions of rapid test kits. kits. They're sitting in warehouses across the country. Some of the provinces uh, aren't rolling them out, but the take-up period across the country has been very low. It is critical that we move these out of warehouses and actually put them uh, into use. And if governments can't do it, whether federal or provincial, if they can't do it directly, then business should be given access to them to be able to do it, uh, as well as other institutions. Uh, I was speaking this morning with Anita Anand, the, the federal minister, and she was making the point that for universities across the country to be able to use rapid testing, 
will help them to more fully reopen their facilities and to get students back in and get professors back into classrooms and to, to resume more ordinary activities. Uh, we simply can't wait. If there are things that we can do directly to be helpful to protect public health and to allow the reopening of our economy in a safe way, uh, we should be doing that. It's hard to have confidence when there's a lot of talk and very little action um, with regard to things being done here and done properly. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Minister Anon, and you've been in contact with the Prime Minister's office. How willing are they not to not just to listen to our business leaders, but to act? I know that you've set up the council, but if they're not willing to act, then what, what next? Well, Minister Anon this morning said she very much welcomed the appointment of the council and uh, asked to have an invitation to meet with them and said she wants very much to work with them. And that's obviously very encouraging for us. Um, what we, you know, all we can do is to make the offer to government. We can't force government to uh, to take up the offer, but we don't have the luxury of sitting on the sidelines. We can sit there and complain about what government is or isn't doing, or we can also ask ourselves, are there things we can do ourselves that will help to make things better? Another example, that would be a company like Linamar Guelph, uh, which is going to be setting up a community clinic for, for vaccination. Uh, Bruce Power is doing something similar. And other countries are other companies are looking at, at is there direct action that we can take to make mm-hmm. a difference instead of simply waiting for government to do it for us? So let me get this straight. What you're doing and other business leaders are doing is you're making sure the framework is set up because you because you don't want to leave anything that could fall through the cracks so that once we get these vaccines in and that once the government says, you know what, I need help with this, you've already got a plan set out. You're making plans for Nigel. The government is Nigel and he just needs to they just need to uh, ask you about getting those plans up and humming. And, And that's what businesses do. Now, the expertise that, that the senior business leaders can bring is both obviously firsthand knowledge, but also the expertise they have in developing business strategies and implementing them. And the great advantage with business is its suppleness. We've seen this throughout the pandemic, that business has the ability to turn on a dime and to, to uh, uh, rethink business plans and to be creative in terms of what it's doing. It's less cumbers- it's, it's like driving a, a sports car instead of driving a truck. It's much more, uh, much more supple. And we are literally in this window between now and the time that, that we get people vaccinated fully in the fall. We are, as the tape that you played a minute ago mentioned, we, we are in a race against time, a race against death, uh, because we have new variants of the disease that are breaking out in, in Canada. And we need to take every single measure that we can, both to speed up vaccination, but also to ensure that in the interim, we have layered on various elements that help to protect uh, Canadians. Uh, there's no one silver bullet, but through the use of PPEs, to the use of, of social distancing and other safety protocols, through the use of the COVID app, uh, through the uh, establishment of best practices, uh, there, you know, rapid testing is another is another example. Mm-hmm. By doing all of these things, we can help Canadians stay safe. We can save lives, and we can begin to get our lives back sooner. I think Canadians would agree that it would violate universal, fundamental, ethical principles. 
to participate in an Olympic Games hosted by a country that is committing a genocide against part of its own population. The Olympic Games and the athletes who compete in them inspire each generation, and they must continue to provide such inspiration, but not in China, in the shadow of a genocide. Today, I call on Prime Minister Trudeau to actively seek the relocation of the 2022 Olympic Games. Canada should not be sending athletes to China in the middle of a genocide. That is Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole here to talk about it. Sarah Teach is international human rights lawyer, a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and a legal advisor to the Canadian Security Research Group. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on again, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Can you give us the Coles notes on exactly what's happening with the Uyghurs in China, who they are and what's going on? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, so the Uyghurs are uh, a minority group in China that has faced years of repression and, well, now genocide. And it's quite clearly a genocide, despite what, what uh, Trudeau said on it yesterday. Uh, the Subcommittee on International Human Rights in October 2020 uh provided a legal opinion. It was uh, included testimony by Erwin Kotler that this uh, constitutes a genocide under the UN Genocide Convention. And we have, you know, we've seen footage of uh, Uyghurs bound uh, and shepherded onto trains, uh, you know, headed towards uh, concentration camps, essentially, which are euphemistically called re-education camps. Uh, We saw an expose by BBC just this month that Uyghur women in these camps are systematically raped and tortured. Uh, the Uyghur men in these camps are tortured as well. And uh, we see uh, women also being forcibly sterilized in an effort to curb the birth rate. We see uh, Uyghur detainees used as uh, forced labor, and that labor is implicated in the supply chains of many multinational uh, corporations, including allegedly Apple, Nike, and Adidas. This is out of an Australian Strategic Policy Institute report uh, last year, which listed 83 multinationals uh, implicated in these supply chains. So there's a huge amount of, uh, uh, there's a wealth of evidence on the atrocities that are happening, and there's been multiple legal opinions now that says this constitutes a genocide. Okay, if so many people are saying this is genocide and there is evidence to back that up, the Prime, the prime Minister not being prepared to say this is genocide, do you suppose that has anything to do with the, the fact that the two Michaels are still in China, haven't been released, and um, we're concerned about their welfare above the people that live in China. That's actually a really good point. I hadn't considered that. Perhaps I, I you know, I think Trudeau has a bit of a history on uh, of uh, being soft on China on these issues, and perhaps the two Michael safety is a factor there. Um, I was surprised by the announcement. Um, I don't know if you saw Erwin Kotler put out a tweet uh, afterwards saying, "If questions remain after the determination of the subcommittee, why not refer it to uh, the Supreme Court of Canada for an advisory opinion?" And I think that's probably you know, the way to go if after the multiple reports uh, saying this is legally genocide don't satisfy you, ask the Supreme Court of Canada. And ultimately, I don't think the two Michaels uh, should be a factor in making that sort of legal determination. To the best of your knowledge, so what O'Toole is asking for is not a boycott of, of the Olympics. He is asking for the Olympics to be relocated. He's saying to the Prime Minister, I want you to seek to have the uh, 2022 Winter Games relocated. Somebody also, I think it was uh, it was the leader of the Green Party. That's right. She had said, hey, why don't we do it in Vancouver? Because we have the infrastructure in Vancouver. We can host a Winter Games. But to the best of your knowledge, have the Olympics ever been relocated? 
Um, so what's interesting is that this sort of uh, debate on uh, boycotts, relocations, this happened in 19, in the lead up to the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, Germany. So this is really like a history repeating itself in quite a large sense. This was when Adolf Hitler already uh, was in power. There were already concentration camps, but it wasn't, I don't believe at that time it was a full-blown genocide yet. Um, the big six, so to speak, death camps weren't created yet. Uh, Hitler hadn't invo- invaded Poland yet, but this was, it was on the rise. And there was huge debate about whether to boycott those Olympics at that time. And what we saw is, we, I mean, obviously we weren't alive uh, then, but what we saw is that uh, opponents to this, the boycott were saying, well, politics has no place in sport. I don't think that's true anymore. I think we've seen uh, the involvement of sport and BLM and, you know, everything this year. But even then, I, I think, you know, a lot of people would tend to agree that that was probably a mistake because those Olympics were held in 36. It became a forum for Hitler to try to legitimize his uh, regime. And within three years, he was invading Poland and, you know, the death camps were, were in full swing of things. So mm-hmm. I, I think we've seen this before, and I don't think we should be making the same mistake again. In terms of whether we do a relocation or a boycott, I think both are probably good options. I, I think moving it probably is, is kinder to the families and the athletes that have been training for this. I think that's that would be preferable, certainly. And Vancouver having the infrastructure makes that quite easy. I agree with that suggestion wholeheartedly. So uh, the 1936 Olympics, uh, you mentioned in Berlin, uh, but the fact that it boycotts were being called for, uh, they didn't occur, uh, basically might have given signaled Hitler the the idea that, well, nobody's going to call me on my actions. And so I'm just going to escalate a little quicker. So we're worried that that could happen in China, I'm guessing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, actually, in the lead up to the Olympics in an effort to, quote unquote, clean up the city. Excuse me. Um, Hitler actually moved a bunch of the uh, Roma to a concentration camp. So we saw this have actually a direct impact on atrocities. I mean, for all we know, this would have happened regardless. And the Olympics being held there had absolutely no effect whatsoever. Obviously, we'll never know that. But I mean, we know that within three years, the situation was far, far worse. And in hindsight, this is, it was probably a mistake to attend. Sarah, I want to thank you for bringing some perspective to this story. And we'll we'll keep following it. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. And that's it for the podcast. Don't forget, we broadcast three hours daily between 9 and noon. You can find us online at 640toronto.com or use your radio.